This is episode 302 of That Shakespeare Life. Just like the work of William Shakespeare, That Shakespeare Life is supported by listeners just like you who sign up to be our patrons. You can help support our show and access bonus Shakespeare history content when you join us as a patron at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. Sign up today and stay tuned after the episode for even more details. Hello, I'm Nick Humphrey, curator of furniture at the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. And the idea was shooting off cannon would blow that stuff away. It didn't work. But there were other ways that they sought to purify things. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. Plague is the horrible sickness that reoccurs throughout the life of William Shakespeare. It even cost the life of some of his children and certainly tons of people within his space and living arrangement, his world, if you will, for the life of William Shakespeare. And many listeners will know that plague is to blame for several closings of playhouses around London throughout the 16th and 17th century. However, exploring exactly what that word means is a really broad topic. There's all kinds of questions like what symptoms did people have when they were afflicted with plague and how was it transmitted from person to person? We can see inside the play Romeo and Juliet, there's evidence that plague responses included being confined in a plague house because, of course, the messenger was contained and he didn't make it to his destination because he was in a plague house. But our guest this week shares that there were some much more surprising and even dangerous remedies utilized in cities like London, including cannon fire, to try and prevent the spread of plague. Yes, I said cannon fire. To better understand what plague is, how it was treated in the 16th and 17th century, and what the medical community understood or what they didn't about microorganisms, and why in the world shooting off cannons in the city was an essential part of plague prevention, we've invited our guest and author of Medicine and Society in Early Modern Europe for Cambridge University Press, Dr. Mary Lindemann, to the show today to answer these questions for us. Mary Lindemann is Professor Emerita of History at the University of Miami. She has written extensively on early modern German and medical history. Her most recent books include Liaisons Dangereux, Sex, Law, and Diplomacy in the Age of Frederick the Great, Medicine and Society in Early Modern Europe, as well as the Merchant Republics, Amsterdam, Antwerp, and Hamburg. She has been the recipient of major scholarly awards, including three NEH fellowships, a resident fellowship at the Netherlands Institute of Advanced Study, a John Simon Guggenheim fellowship, and an Alexander von Humboldt fellowship. She is currently writing a book on the wars of the mid to late 17th century, and especially the aftermath in Brandenburg. She has been president of the German Studies Association and was the 2020 president of the American Historical Association. Hello, Mary. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life. I'm glad to be here. It's very nice that you invited me to talk about Shakespeare, or at least about plague. Yes, and with someone who ha shares his birthday. I think that's really exciting. Yeah, as long as I don't share his death day. Yeah, we'll, we'll hold you to that. Yeah. 
Now we are clearing up a point of confusion in this episode because when we're talking about plague in Shakespeare's lifetime, you know, plague could mean a whole lot of things. So is this word used always to describe bubonic plague when we see it? Should we think of the disease known as the Black Death from the 14th century or is it something else? Yes. Let me start out with a general statement, and that is naming or identifying diseases in the past is a very troublesome problem for most historians of medicine who go back and forth on it. We have, of course, no lab results, and very often what people in the past term diseases, we might well consider only symptoms. One good example, it comes from the 19th century, but it's a very good example, is dropsy, a name common in the 18th and 19th centuries, but today something we would consider edema, you know, a watery swelling usually in the legs and often caused by congestive heart failure. However, in the 17th century, people would have spoken about plague or often pestilence. It is still debated among historians how frequent the designation Black Death was applied, where, by whom, and when. It was not always used to describe plague. And I'm going to sort of get ahead of myself here with one of your questions, but I think it belongs here. It's important here to remember that most people believe plague passed directly from human to human, that it was contagious, through touch or breath or was carried through the air. But there were alternative explanations for how it was transmitted. It was also believed that the air itself could be infected and evolve into a miasma or bad air, which is where we get the word malaria, that both caused an epidemic to spread and to infect people who were not close in touch with one another. Some things that people ask me very often is, did people consider it a plague sent by God for their wickedness? Not so much, actually. (laughs) They might worry about that, but they also had all of these other ideas about how to spread plague and what to do about it. I know there's a lot of other communicable diseases, things that mm-hmm. that are shared. I mean, this is pre, you know, science of of bacteria and transmission of disease, and there, there's a lot of science that's not happening here. But they're not far off with the transmission of diseases. They do understand that diseases can be spread, but and bubonic plague is is far from the only one. We've got things like syphilis, yellow fever, diphtheria, dysentery, and malaria that you mentioned, all of which were present during Shakespeare's lifetime. And I have to think bubonic plague wasn't the only disease everybody was battling in the 16th and 17th century. So when we see places closed down, quote, for plague. Is this just a catch-all term for any of these diseases? Or was there a particular plague that was maybe primary in this period? Well, first, plague was often a word used very broadly. You could have a plague of locusts, for example. So it was not only used for disease. In the 16th and 17th centuries, people would say plague, but they would often frequently say pestilence and mean pretty much the same thing. Plague, or what they recognized as plague, was certainly the most prevalent and feared communicable disease. Yellow fever, for example, was not much of a threat in Europe in the 17th century, or at least not in Northern Europe. It was more common and deadly in the Caribbean, in Africa, and in later places like New Orleans. It was, unlike plague, what we call an arbovirus, that is a virus conveyed to humans by arthropods, which means insect-borne, and transmitted by the bite of particular mosquitoes, and very common in hot and wet climates. 
malaria was a problem, even in some swampy areas of early modern Europe, and curiously in Illinois. It was caused by a microorganism of the, the genus Plasmodium. It was common, for instance, in the fens of England around Cambridge or in the areas around Venice. Dysentery was in the 17th century an umbrella term for all sorts of violent gastrointestinal infections like amoebic dysentery and cholera, although cholera became more prevalent first in the 18th and 19th century. Diphtheria that you mentioned was also known and feared as the strangles and it was especially deadly to children. The Spanish had a special word for it called the garretillo, which meant the garret around the neck, which children and anyone who had diphtheria died from not being able to breathe because their their neck was so swollen. Syphilis is another disease, of course, that is frequently mentioned or alluded to in much early modern literature, and not only in Shakespeare. It was, of course, known in English as the French disease, but it had many other names. It was a new disease in the 15th century, probably, although not definitively, a new world disease importation to the old world. Influenza was also prevalent, but as we know, it could appear in all sorts of forms. It could be mild. It could be less mild. It could be extremely serious. It could be deadly. The famous or infamous sweating sickness that struck England in the 15th and 16th century and not only with which Shakespeare was familiar, but which he also referred to, remains a mysterious problem. It was exceedingly lethal and may have been a particularly deadly form of influenza or an enterovirus. Influenza, like COVID, spreads by droplet infection, as we all know, much to our grief. Enteroviruses are transmitted through the intestinal tract. It was deadly but nobody knows what it was. It remains an unsolved mystery. So all of these diseases were around and people differentiated between them to some extent, but often they would use the same word to describe them. It's a pestilence. In the case of malaria, they considered that something that people suffered who li- who weren't seasoned. That's the word that they used a lot in South Carolina seasoned to live in these areas and that they would get better over time, which they did if they didn't die. Well, which is always the goal, I guess. Yeah. I know that we have a lot of different phrases going on here, but one other disease phrase I would like for you to clear up for us is the phrase, the catching disease, or even Mm -hmm. the dangerous disease. We see these phrases come up a lot when we study Shakespeare history, either because you know, primary documents are talking about them, or they definitely get used in literature that writes about it. It was something they were afraid of. Are these terms and phrases, what diseases are they talking about when they're calling it a catching disease? It's a little difficult because early modern people and ancient people had an idea that certain diseases were communicable or contagious, and others were just disorders of the body that were not contagious. It's like today, if you have something like colitis, that's a disease, but you can't catch it from anybody else. But they had very clear ideas of what diseases were catching. And those were the ones that they most feared. And certainly they considered plague to be a catching disease. Malaria, not so much. 
Syphilis, definitely, although syphilis was spread in a very different way, but you got it from person to person. Uh, so anything that was person to person communicable, they considered a catching disease. And they feared that because there were often ways you could get it from people that you really couldn't avoid coming into contact with. And often they were also people that you could not tell that they were actually sick, much as with COVID. So that's how they referred to as a catching disease. Now, you alluded to this earlier when you said that historians exploring the history of diseases from the past don't have lab results to consult. And we don't. We don't have throat cultures from Shakespeare's lifetime, blood tests, or other direct evidence to examine that way. So I wonder how researchers are able to determine what a disease was from the past. You talked about dropsy and how today we would call it edema. How are we able to look back at diseases from the 16th century and explore words like plague, which are so general, and be able to determine exactly what it was that was shutting the theaters down during Shakespeare's lifetime or what they were combating when we're looking at it outside of the language and without the testing to be able to be accurate that way? Yeah. And here I have an adverb for you, cautiously, because it is very, very difficult. And some medical historians say we should never diagnose disease retrospectively. But that's we should look at the what what people perceived, what the effects were, but we shouldn't really say what it is. However, this gets really interesting recently and very complicated, and plague plays an enormous role here. Currently, it is a matter of great debate among historians and epidemiologists, a very productive debate, I might add, uh, about can we really discern what the disease is? I can't cover everything involved here in a few minutes, but let's just say this. Most people in the 17th century assumed that the appearance of buboes, that is swollen lymph glands or swollen lymph nodes in the armpit of groin was the infallible sign. Spitting blood was another sign. At one time, historians accepted almost to a person that the plague of the 14th and the 17th century and all those in between and after, of course, was bubonic plague caused by something called Yersinia pestis. It's a bacteria. Several decades ago, however, some historians and epidemiologists began to doubt all this. And they began to look at evidence that didn't really seem to fit with what we normally understood the bubonic plague to be. For example, there was a variability in mortality. There were differences as one plague tended to be a problem in summer, sometimes in some places, in winter, in other places, and sometimes quite capriciously. There was also much debate about was it a long epidemic? Was it a short epidemic? Was it more deadly to old people or women or children? Why could they have all these different appearances and still be the same disease? Then there was a long back and forth about the presence of absence of rats and the ability of fleas or other body vermin to transmit the disease. Historians who carefully read the sources found considerable divergence in all of this and found that the word buboes, for example, virtually never appeared while plague was active. So that leaves us kind of shaking our heads or scratching our heads. There was, as you have pointed out, and as I said earlier, no lab tests to prove what the causative organism was. One can observe, however, that the first incursion of plague in the 14th century was the most widespread, where no place in Europe appears to have been spared, 
and lethal. The currently accepted estimates range from a low of 30% mortality, and that's one that's rapidly losing supporters, to 50%, and some argue that in many places it killed even two-thirds of the population. That makes COVID look like a walk in a park. It's really very deadly. In the absence of reliable demographic death data on mortality, we don't have statistics. Certainly, plagues affects moderated in Europe. The first plague was the worst, and the later plagues became increasingly moderate, with a couple of exceptions. And one is, of course, the Great Plague of London of 1665. In Western Europe, plague had mostly disappeared by 1720, except in Russia. Not until the 19th century, actually during the 1894 outbreak of plague in Hong Kong, did a group of Japanese and Russian bacteriologists identify the bacteria responsible, and that bacteria was then named for one of them, Alexander Yersin, who was, of course, a Russian. And thus, Yersin pestis is the name that is the accepted, not scientific name. However, you often see the older name, Pastorella pestis, because Yersin worked at the Pasteur Institute in Paris, and Pasteur was the big cheese, and Yersin wasn't, so he got the name. But into this morass of interpretations has now come a DNA analysis, that is ancient DNA analysis that is revolutionizing the entire study of plague and almost everything about it, its spread, its lethality, its characters, where it came from. One good example is the DNA analysis of tooth pulp found in skeletons in a plague pit in Marseille, and that's the 1720 epidemic of bubonic plague. And that showed that it was the same genome as contemporary forms of plague. Here's a quick aside, too. Plague is alive and well today. In the United States and steppe lands of Eurasia, it is a disease mostly of burrowing mammals, marmosets and prairie dogs, for example. Estimates of the total cases of plague in Vietnam during the Vietnam War during the 1960s range between 100,000 and 250,000 with fatality rates from 5% from those who received treatment to 60 to 90% who did not. And many American soldiers actually got plague as well, as you can imagine in the, in the burrows and the trenches in which they lived. So that's a very complicated answer. The new tools we have in DNA analysis, the growing body of comparative climate data, and the use of complicated data analysis and genetic mapping have complicated what was once a rather elegantly simple story of rats, fleas, and humans, and has made it one of the most exciting medical historical fields of the 21st century. And maybe I should say something about rats, fleas, and humans uh, very quickly. The general idea is that plague is really an epizootic. It is a disease of animals, an epidemic of animals. And rats get it, and the fleas on rats bite the, the rat, get the bacteria into their stomach, and then go to bite another rat and pass it on to that rat. Now, when all the rats die, or when a lot of rats die, the rat flea has to find another host. And human beings aren't the first choice, but they are very close by. And so the idea was that that was the way that bubonic plague was transmitted. And then there was also 
Sometimes it passed to the lungs, and that would cause pneumonic plague, which was 100% fatal. Nobody survived that. So what Yersin and others were able to prove in the late 19th century is that at least some of the outbreaks of what was generally labeled plague was bubonic plague. But there's contextual evidence for the other outbreaks to suggest that it's not universal. Not all of the outbreaks of plague were always bubonic plague. It might have been other diseases. And we are working through things like exploring ancient DNA to find data that can confirm exactly what was going on where. Yeah. And one of the difficulties when they were in 1894 in Hong Kong, and there was another epidemic in 1895 in India, they found that the fatality rate was much lower than the fatality rate in 14th century Italy or 17th century England, which was another part of this puzzle. Why, why, why should the mortality rate be different if the disease is the same? Problem they haven't completely solved yet, but Still, they know it is the same disease. It is caused by the same bacterium. In Mary's publication, she quotes two separate 16th century references for plague. One describes the illness as, quote, a disease so cruel, so distressing, so appalling that until now, nothing so horrifying, nothing more terrible or disgusting has ever been known on this earth, end quote. And the other reference describes effects of the disease as a rash, inability to walk, blindness, and that the sickness lasted an astonishing 60 days, which I just can't imagine suffering from that for that long. That's incredible. Mary, explain for us the experience of having plague. What were the symptoms of someone who caught plague in Shakespeare's lifetime? Well, it's kind of like long COVID, I guess, to have the plague for 60 days. Probably nobody had the plague for 60 days. Some of the youth mentioned some of the symptoms. Some of the other symptoms were fever, spitting blood, hallucinations, diarrhea, and almost anything else have been described by contemporaries as a symptom of plague. Typically, as much as we can talk about typically, people got plagued. They started out with a fever and a headache, and then they became weak, and then they had problems with their stomach. And sometimes, apparently, they developed swellings in the lymph nodes. But as we all know, swellings in the lymph nodes can be caused by many, many, many things, and not only by Yersinia pestis, not only by plague. So all of those things have been seen as a symptom of plague. And those many descriptions, of course, have led to an uncertainty about what the disease really was. The bills of mortality, this were official lists of deaths and their putative causes, were first used in Renaissance cities, and particularly to record plague deaths during epidemics. Such mortality, however, later covered all diseases. And so you got the bills of mortality that included deaths from being kicked by a horse or in a fire in the house. But during plague, the reality was that whatever anybody died of, they died of plague, or that was at least the way they were listed in the bills of mortality. But there weren't as many cholera deaths as were recorded as cholera deaths, because there's a tendency in plague in particular, not to want to get too near somebody who has died of plague to figure out whether they really have the, the signs or the marks of plague. And so, you know, if you died during plague, you died of plague, whether you did or not. In Mary's publication, she writes that contemporary medical experts were often ineffective resources for information on preventing the spread of disease and that 
works like the Bible actually provided more direction when it related to managing contagions. Mary, for the 16th and 17th century, why was the Bible more useful than the work of Hippocrates or Galen in this regard? Well, Galen and Hippocrates accepted the idea that some diseases were catching diseases, some diseases were communicable diseases, some epidemics in particular. But they also emphasized environmental causes of disease in works like the Hippocratic work, Airs, Waters, and Places. In other words, that you got sick because of where you were. There was a bad water, bad air, the environment. There were volcanic fumes, and those things made you sick, not something passing between people. The biblical treatment of leprosy, which is one of the diseases that is by far the most discussed in the Bible, however, very much gave a lot of support to the idea of contagion because the way in biblical times and also in the Middle Ages, in in ancient times and in the Middle Ages, people who were diagnosed as being lepers were ostracized from society. They were driven out of society. And in many, many cases, when they were diagnosed with leprosy, they were given a funeral. They were still alive, but they were given a funeral because they were considered dead to society. They thought even a slight or infrequent contact with a leper would give you leprosy, or as we now know, it's Hansen's disease, which is not very communicable. But there was this this fear of being unclean. There's also a question here in some respects about what could be done and what did doctors do? And I need to be perfectly clear here. Nothing medicine or doctors could do made the least bit of difference in mortality rates. What sometimes worked was good nursing care and good nutrition. People who lived in what we might call institutional settings, monks and nuns, for example, experienced the highest mortality rates. But such institutions also housed the the oldest people as well. The best preventive for plague was getting out of town, flight. And that was often condoned. Martin Luther, for example, said, flee soon, flee far, and come back slowly. In other words, simply get out of town. One could, of course, avoid obviously ill people in the circumstances of the 16th and 17th century. However, considering the circumstances of housing and hygiene, you couldn't afford fleas. And you couldn't afford rats. Rats were commensal. They lived with humans and especially in places with large grain supplies. And epidemiologists have actually traced the movement of plague along grain trade routes. And it is a very very interesting new piece of evidence about how they, they moved. What also helped, at least psychologically, was the feeling that you were not being abandoned by your family and the civic authorities. City councilors, for example, or parish priests and pastors, like doctors and surgeons, did not inevitably flee for their lives and leave behind helpless people. Daniel Defoe's Journal of the Plague Year, which he wrote, he didn't live through it, he wrote afterwards, uh, his Journal of the Plague Year has conditioned us to believe that people became inured to suffering and Whenever plague was in the city, they closed down their houses. They refused to see their friends. They abandoned their families when they got sick, and they didn't have enough people even to bury the dead. Probably not true. It seems like most of the evidence now suggests that a lot of people stayed and helped, and there were a lot of physicians, 
but also civic authorities who did their best to provide for people who were ill. And so they also would order processions and masses and prayers, but none of that did much to cure disease or prevent disease. And there were a lot of psychological and social ways of dealing with the horror of disease, although it didn't cure anybody, unfortunately. It is interesting to observe that turning to the Bible provided effective advice on handling plague and managing contagion, as opposed to condemning plague sufferers for experiencing God's wrath, which is how I think we expect plague response and the Bible to be approaching that problem. And it's it's surprising to think that that was where they turned for Hey, yeah. here's here's how you can avoid catching this. Now, yeah. the discovery of microscopic organisms occurred after the life of William Shakespeare, but the life of one of the scientists who observed what were then called little animals did overlap with Shakespeare. I think I'm saying his name right as Athanasius Kircher. Athanasius Kircher. Yeah, thank you. And he was born in 1602 and lived until 1680. And he was in college the year that Shakespeare died and wouldn't make his discoveries about microorganisms until two decades later in 1646. But it was entirely too close to Shakespeare's lifetime for me to not bring it up in context of our conversation on plague. Mary, can you tell us about the men who discovered microorganisms in the 17th century? And were they using instruments similar to our modern microscopes for their observations? Yes and no. These bacteria are, of course, impossible to see with the naked eye, and viruses are much smaller. In 1546, Girolamo, I have trouble with his name, Frascatoro, formulated a classic text called On Contagion, in which he speculated that there were seeds that floated around and caused disease, and you inhaled these seeds. He never saw those seeds, of course, as pure guesswork. He was sort of right. But because he died in 1553 before any microscope existed, he never saw anything that he could even think was something like a microorganism. It is generally accepted that the first compound microscope, that is one with two lenses, was probably invented around 1600 by a Dutch spectacle maker, not the famous von Leeuwenhoek, but rather one Zacharias Janssen. These early microscopes, however, only had a magnification of 20 to 30 times, and this could also not discern micropathogens like bacteria. Leuvenhoek's improved microscope with its finely ground lenses could magnify by about 200 times. That's enough to see wiggly little sperms and blood cells and many other things, parasitic worms or animals like paramecia, but not bacteria and far less viruses. This was also true of Kircher. He certainly observed much under his very fine microscopes. But we also must remember that many of these microorganisms and micropathogens actually cannot be seen unless they're stained and they have to be properly stained. So any belief in contagion had to be based on speculation and guesswork, not on what we might call scientific evidence because nobody saw those little bacteria. Kircher indeed and this is his contribution, really, had the idea of studying blood of plague victims under his microscope. And he published the results, but he was certainly not a bacteriologist before his time. He saw something wiggling around there under his microscope, but it was not a plague. It was not uh, Yersinia pestis. And even if he had identified a causative agent, let's say he had some super microscope, which he didn't have, and he saw these actual things, that would have only been one piece in a far more complex puzzle. 
How did the causative agent really get from person to person, for instance? So it's, again, a complex story, but a very interesting one. So he had the hypothesis part of the scientific method, but wasn't really able to do the firm experiments to confirm. So it was it was a part of the story. I'm impressed, really, with his seeds theory of Girolamo in 1546. That that's a pretty neat thing to know that he he did he was on the right track with what what he was the conclusions he was drawing there. Yeah, and it's very very interesting because this idea of things passing from one person to the other, you can also see it in Aztec drawings from before the conquest where people no, from during the conquest where the Aztecs saw that smallpox was passed in breath and they show it, you know, like one of those breath balloons that you see in cartoons and you see these little things being passed. So it's a very common belief. Now, when it comes to responding to plague outbreaks, we're very familiar here at That Shakespeare Life with the idea that playhouses were often closed because of plague. And Romeo and Juliet tells us about confining plague sufferers to a plague house under quarantine because, of course, the messenger was unable to deliver his message because he gets stuck in a quarantined house. But one of the more surprising remedies that Mary writes about was when the cities tried to purify the air, and they did this with cannon fire. I was shocked by this, Mary. Why cannon fire? And what was it supposed to be doing that was good to get rid of plague? Well, as I said earlier, that while most people believe that plague was communicable from person to person, they did not necessarily believe that you had to be in contact with these people. It could pass through the air. So if it passed through the air in one of these miasmas, you had all this stuff floating around in the air. And the idea was shooting off cannon would blow that stuff away. It didn't work. But there were other ways that they sought to purify things. They used vinegar a lot. They used vinegar and essence of some other things to try to purify surfaces, much as we would use Lysol to try to purify, I mean, try to clear the bacteria off of our our surfaces. They would fumigate houses with different kinds of smoke and often with what with things that we would call incest. And people, when they walked around, would often hold what was called a sachet or a posy to their nose of sweet smelling herbs and flowers to try to purify the air as it passed through. So those were kinds of things they did. They also called for processions. They called for prayers. And like I said earlier, that's psychologically very beneficial. And there is, of course, a perfectly sound medical theory that says people who have a cheery outlook on life and feel more comfortable are far less likely to become ill. Whether that's really going to help you with plague or not, I doubt. But it could make you feel better. Now, with the global COVID pandemic so recent for us today, considering a 16th century response to a plague outbreak is more approachable for us, I think, in a lot of ways, because we know that the playhouses were closed. That makes sense because businesses were shut down for us as well. But I wonder if the playhouses being shut down for Shakespeare's lifetime is indicative about other things in a broader sense. Were social events or other businesses besides theater shut down as well? And what were the similar requirements of, okay, this city is suffering from plague. Here are the mandates that are going out for how everyone needs to behave now until the plague outbreak is lifted. What would that have looked like in the 16th century? Well, one of the most important ideas was to prevent uh, plague from coming into the city. And we know most about the cities coming into the city. So you uh, you closed your gates. You erected a quarantine. 
You set up a system of health passes where you had to test, you had to show that you had not come from a place that had plague. And those kinds of measures were used a lot. They were very much debated and very much uh, the source of much discomfort among populations. Because if you close off the city, you shut the gates and you forbid people to meet, commerce ends, the economy ends. And so that there was a lot of argument about whether which was worse, the plague or to simply starve to death. They also forbade large gatherings. But again, that was another problem. You could forbid large gatherings because you were afraid people would pass the disease from one to the other. On the other hand, if you wanted to have processions to try to placate an angry God or to pray for mercy or even to make people feel better, then that brought a lot of people together. And there were real fights within cities and city councils about whether large gatherings were a good thing or whether they were a bad thing. And they usually decided to do both. They would forbid many large gatherings, but they would have processions carrying, for example, images of saints. So they tried a little bit of everything. They required people to remove in their in their houses that they had plague, but they also, many cities, set up kind of like DoorDash or Grubhub services where they people would be provided with food. We provide it with water. We even provide it with medical care. They also, when some, uh, people died in the plague house, they burn clothing and they burn bedclothes, which, you know, considering where fleas live and where rats live, that's probably fairly effective. On the other hand, they also had them kill their dogs and cats, which probably didn't help reduce the rat population any, although dogs and cats Rat fleas don't seem to like dogs and cats. Fleas are very specific animals. So that the fleas your cat has, if your cat has fleas, are very different from the fleas your dog would have or your pet rat, I guess. Well, I know that we've touched on several areas of plague and contagion and management here that I I know we would love to learn more and explore this further, especially some of the information you shared on modern research techniques that are shining a new light on this part of history. Where should we start? If this is a new topic for us, where would you suggest we begin to learn more? Well, there's a lot of different ways you can approach it. And some of the things I'm going to suggest are fairly standard, and some of them are much newer. For example, I'm going to start with the newer. A heavy read, but a very important book, is one by a man named James Bellish, and he calls it The World the Plague Made. And he, that's which sounds crazy, he argues that the plague and the European responses or the Eurasian responses to plague really created the world that we have now. It's a fascinating book. It's speculative in certain ways. He also covers a lot of the the newer evidence and the newer ways of trying to understand plague, including all the ADNA evidence. If somebody has a little bit of interest in genetics and a little bit of knowledge about genetics. Reading anything by the scholar Monica Green is an excellent idea. She's written very extensively on the new the, the use of ADNA, and a lot of it is extremely accessible. She was, for many years, a professor of history at Arizona State University, and she taught a course on epidemics that evolved over the course of her 25 years there, from, you know, sort of the more standard explanations of plague into this newer 
ADNA and genome evidence. Fictional accounts, these are pretty good. I mean, they're not science, they're not history, but they often give an immediate idea of what living through a plague epidemic was like. And it's good to know about them because they actually have contoured the way we understand plague, even if you've never read these things. It sort of becomes urban legend or something like that. Daniel Defoe's Journal of the Plague Year, which appeared in 1722. And then, of course, all the stories in Boccaccio's Decameron are triggered by people fleeing the plague and going away from the plague, leaving Florence and going up on a hill. And, of course, there's another famous plague work which talks about the psychological and social and cultural aspects of plague. It was written in the 20th century, Albert Camus' The Plague. There's also a new book out by a, a major Renaissance historian, Guido Ruggiero, called Love in the Time of Plague, which is not only about Boccaccio and the Decameron. And a very, very lively book was written by Lloyd and Dorothy Moot called The Great Plague, The Story of London's Most Deadly Year, which is a historian's look at what Daniel Defoe describes in a novelistic way. There's also James Ameling's edition and translation of a diary of a man who lived through a 17th century play. And it's a diary of a Barcelona tanner. And that's very valuable because most of the work we have in the early modern period, it's changing, but most of the work we have is often on elites. This is a guy, a tanner, a guy who tans skins for a living, who kept a diary all through through the 1651 plague in Barcelona. So those are the ones I'd kind of recommend and they're kind of the best ones. But, you know, when you start Googling plague, it's like Googling pyramid. You get a bunch of stuff. Yes, which is why we really appreciate you giving us a guide for for where to start, because it is a very broad topic. And we wanted to make sure we were beginning with something reliable that, okay, we want to learn more. What what should we look at? And we will place a link to all of these excellent resources with direct links to each one in the show notes for today's episode. So make sure you hang on to the end for the URL for where to find those. Mary, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. I thought about this for a long time, and I thought it has to be a book that I can reread many times because I'm going to be stuck on a desert island, right? And still see new things in it. And so two of these, I'm cheating a bit are the Iliad and the Odyssey. I think those are excellent choices. Uh, you could definitely return to them multiple times and find something new and spend your time really well there on your deserted island. So I think those are good choices. I could probably memorize them. It, yeah, <laughs> if, if you and perform them, I suppose. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? I'm currently writing a book about the aftermath of war in 17th century Germany. Uh, that's right after the Thirty Years' War. It's particularly focused on the impact of war on the environments and the ecologies and how the very acts of rebuilding after the war also made momentous changes in the environment. People think of the war destroying the environment and destroying ecologies, but they also, when people rebuilt, they also transformed the environment and the ecologies. And so it's a story of waters, trees, plants, and foods, but also of new methods of resource, resource exploitation and management. 
That sounds exciting. And definitely, if it is as much fun as exploring the history of plague is or has been here for us today, I know we'll enjoy exploring that as well. If you would like to learn more about Mary's work and follow her upcoming projects, we'll place links in the show notes to Mary's website so that you can follow her. And Mary, thank you so much for being here. I've enjoyed exploring the history of plague from Shakespeare's lifetime and taking a look at exactly what it was and what it wasn't, as well as the different responses that were going on and what it would have been like if you were Shakespeare in the 16th century living with this disease around in your world. I really appreciate you taking the time to be here and share it with us. Thank you for inviting me. I've gathered up visuals and artifacts to go along with our conversation today, including images and artifacts that provide visual elements for the history you're learning about in our show. You can explore all the extra tidbits, as well as direct links to Mary's work and that fabulous list of resources that she recommended for you if you would like to learn more about plague and what it was like in the 16th and 17th century for England and Europe as a whole. You can find all of these things packed into the show notes at CassidyCash.com slash episode 302. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP. 302. If you're a huge Shakespeare fan and you love the history of 16th and 17th century England, you can step inside the 17th century and go beyond the episode with insider history access, including bonus episodes of our show, not available on public listening platforms, in-depth detailed history, virtual tours, documentary films, and even activity kits that let you try out some of the history you learn about on our show, all available on our Patreon page. Our show is powered by our patrons. You are the lifeblood and literally the support of the work that we do here. You make it all possible. And to say thank you for supporting our work and joining us inside our little Shakespeare club, there is tons of interactive, in-depth history that coordinates with our podcast and with Shakespeare's plays, all available there for you to use and enjoy. You can find out more and sign up today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That Shakespeare life is researched and produced by me, Cassidy Cash. Our audio engineer is Gary Mayholm. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.